Every time, I just want to fix that. Um, maybe you felt that urge over the past five weeks. Well, good morning. My name is Andy. I am the high school pastor here, and I'm really honored to be able to teach this morning as we wrap up our series called Perfect. The past five weeks, we've taken a look at the fact that there are no perfect families, and there are no perfect kids, no perfect parents, no perfect marriages. And this morning, we take a look at the fact that there are no perfect people. And I don't think I have to spend a lot of time to convince you that there are no perfect people. I think you could look around the auditorium and you could say, well, I know that person's not perfect. And I know that person's not perfect. Okay. But then in a moment of honest and self-reflection, if you thought about your own life as uncomfortable as it might be, you could say, well, I know I'm not perfect either. So what I want to do this morning, rather than try and convince you that we're not perfect, is to try and uncover what our relationship should be to our imperfection. How ought we to process the fact that we are broken and imperfect people? Are, are we to wallow in, in our imperfection? Should it lead us into some depression about the fact that we just can never achieve perfection? Is it, make, is it supposed to make us sad, dejected? Is it, is it going to drive us towards self-help curriculum and classes and books to just try and become the best version of us that we can be? And although we can't be perfect, we can get as close to it as possible. Do we use our imperfection and our brokenness uh, as license to do whatever we want to do? If, if you know I'm not perfect and I know I'm not perfect and you try and hold me accountable on something, I'm able to say, well, I'm not perfect. And when I hurt others and people uh, tell me that that's not good behavior or that was not helpful, I say, well, I'm not, I'm not perfect. So lay, lay off. What should, our, what should the relationship be to our imperfection? And there's a story in John chapter four that I think can help us understand how we ought to process our imperfection. And more importantly, what Jesus's role should be in our imperfection. And the story is Jesus and the woman at the well. And it's a story of a conversation where Jesus, a Jewish man, is trying to reveal himself to the Samaritan woman as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the one who has come to deliver. And Jews and Samaritans, as some of you might know, did not get along in the first century. The Jews were God's chosen people. Old Testament, for no other reason than God is good and gracious and sovereign, decided to choose the nation of Israel as his people. And he was going to show them his favor and he was going to use them to bless other nations. And it was through the nation of Israel that other nations would come to know God. And so the nation of Israel were, were God's people and they had this sense of pride, as you can imagine. The sense of nationalism that came with being a Jew. And about 700 BC, the Samaritans were people that were Jews that intermarried with other nations as a result of war and conflict. And so now you have these Samaritans who are only half Jewish and you have these Jews who still are God's chosen people. And there's this tension because the Jews think the Samaritans are no longer God's people. They are now outside of God's plan. And, a result, and the result is this animosity, this dislike, this tension between the two people groups. And so Jesus, as a Jewish male, is sitting at a well with a Samaritan woman, and he's trying his best to reveal himself as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the one who has come to deliver. And here's the conversation in John chapter 4. We see the first attempt right off the bat. He says this in verse 7 of John 4. So a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's starting to try and, and let this woman know that he's not just a stranger or a passerby. He has an agenda here. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman misses it and she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus, like a clever teacher, is sitting at the well with this woman and he wants her to know that he's the savior. He wants her to know that he's the Messiah. And so he takes the thing that is right in front of them, water and a well, and he, and he tries uh, to use it as an object lesson. He tries to show her that as water is to your body, the the nourishment and replenishment that water gives to your body, I have something that can do that to your soul. I have this living water. And this woman is thinking literally, not figuratively, and she doesn't understand uh, what he's trying to do. And more importantly than using this object lesson, he's trying to align himself with Old Testament language. It would have been common in the Old Testament for God to revert to himself or his plans or his promise, his word, obedience to him, life with him as water, as a spring, as replenishment, as rest, as refreshment. And so a Jew sitting there who knew his Old Testament, especially wisdom literature and the prophets, might have heard this living water talk that this stranger was saying. It might have gone to passages like Isaiah 55.1, where God says, come to me, all you are thirsty, and I'll give you a drink. Or he might have gone to Zechariah 14.8, where God says, in the future, there's going to be this spring of living water that's going to come out of Jerusalem. He might have gone to God's rebuke in Jeremiah 2, where God tells the people, you have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And so a Jew sitting there hearing this stranger talk about living water and access to living water, if he knew his Old Testament, might have immediately realized that this guy is talking in language of the Old Testament. This guy is talking the way that God talks. It might have triggered something. The Samaritan woman, though, does not know her Old Testament. In fact, she probably only uh, had the first five books of the Old Testament, which most Samaritans had, and she completely misses the metaphor and the object lesson, and she also misses the fact that he's aligning himself with, with God. And so Jesus tries a different tactic. He clearly has an agenda. He wants this woman to know that he's the Savior. She doesn't get his metaphor, doesn't get his object lesson. So he decides to try and push the issue a little bit. He decides, rather than try and go the water route and and try and show her that she has a a greater, more basic need than water at this well, that he was going to push into her personal life. Uh, He was going to try to expose her need for a savior by, by getting into the mess of her life. And so here's what happens next. And if it seems like an abrupt change in the conversation, I think it is an abrupt change in the conversation. I think it's a very clear course direction in Jesus's dialogue to say, okay, that didn't work. Let me try this. Let me push on your life a little bit to see if I can get you to realize that you need me. See if I can get you to to talk in terms that you understand about your broken life. So this is what he says in verse 16. He says, go, call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. 
And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had, had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So Jesus changes course to the conversation, says, let's try and get into the mess of your life. Let's try and get personal. And maybe in this personal conversation, I can reveal that you're broken, that you're imperfect, that you have a pattern of habitual sin in your life that is on its sixth round here. And maybe, maybe in that conversation, I can reveal myself as the Savior. And the woman, as you can see, wants nothing to do with the conversation, which makes sense. We wouldn't probably want anything to do with that conversation. So he pushes. He says, go get your husband. And she puts Jesus at arm's length and she says, I don't have a husband. To a normal stranger, this is the end of the conversation. Because a normal stranger doesn't have intimate knowledge of her life. And so she immediately tries to end the conversation and said, I don't, I don't have a husband. Next topic. But Jesus is Jesus and he has an agenda and he knows her life. And so he pushes and he exposes her sin. And he exposes her brokenness. And says, you've had five husbands. You're living with someone now that's not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And her response is she continues to push away. She says, wow, that was really impressive. You have this incredible knowledge. Maybe you're a prophet. And rather than keep trying to take advantage of the fact that she's talking to potentially a prophet, to someone that has this intimate knowledge, she decides it would be more beneficial, it would be more comfortable to talk about the pressing theological political issue of the day, which is which mountain should we worship on? It's easier to talk politics and theology than it is to talk about the mess and the brokenness of our life. It's easier to talk about other people's issues than our issues. And so she pushes and she says, you seem like you know what you're talking about. Would you take a crack at this political theological question that we're dealing with? You see, the Jews worship over here in Jerusalem. Samaritans, we worship on this mountain over here. Where should we worship? Samaritans weren't welcomed in Jerusalem, part of the reason why they created their own mountain to worship God. They only had the first five books of the Old Testament. And so how they read that and interpreted that, they came up with this interpretation that here's the place to worship God and Jews were different. And we don't have time to go into Jesus's answer, but his answer is perfect. It's theologically rich, it's prophetic, and it's another attempt at him to reveal himself as the savior, as God. She, he basically says, don't worry about where to worship because everything's changing because I'm here. So everything's changing. Don't worry about it. Pretty soon you're going to worship in spirit and truth. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Just table the discussion because it's, it's not going to be relevant in a few years. And her response, I hope you laugh at this because it's funny. Her response is, I don't understand what you just said. I'll wait for the Messiah and he'll explain it better than you can explain it. And I feel like in Jesus's frustration and his fourth attempt, his fourth attempt to just tell her, I am the Messiah. He just comes out and says, I am the one who is speaking. I am that guy that you're waiting for. You didn't understand the water metaphor. You didn't let me pry into your life to try and expose a need that you have for a savior. You didn't understand my theological, political answer to your most pressing issue. I'll just tell you, I'm the guy you've been waiting for. It's incredible. And I wish, we understood, I wish we had a little bit of, of what was going on in her mind because all we see is that the disciples come back at that point. And the disciples come back from town and they, they're conferencing with Jesus to talk about their agenda or their days or what they bought or whatever. And I can just see this woman who has just been told that she's been talking and having an encounter with, with the Messiah, with the Christ, with the Savior. 
And I can see her rolling through the conversation they just had, trying to validate his claim. Okay, this stranger just told me that he's the Messiah. Could that possibly be true? And she starts to think about the conversation they just had. She starts to think about the water conversation, the conversation about her husband, the conversation about the mountain. She's trying to find validation, trying to find a reason to believe what Jesus just said. And what is so fascinating, and what we're gonna talk about this morning is the thing that sticks out to her. What validates Jesus's claim is that middle conversation, that conversation about her brokenness, that conversation about her messy life, about her systemic habitual patterns of sin that seemed to convince her that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said that he was the Messiah. And I say that because of her response in verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? It seems that knowledge of her past and more than just the knowledge of her past, that intimate uh, conversation they had about her messiness is what convinced her that Jesus was who he said he was. You might've caught it. I missed it the first time I read it. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar. This beautiful phrase that John, I feel like intentionally keeps in his gospel as if to say, this thing that was so important to her at the beginning of the day, it was her day's agenda. This thing that five minutes ago, she couldn't have imagined anything better than unlimited access to water. This thing that was what her day and potentially her life was about is now a mere afterthought. She leaves it at the well and she runs out because she has found something better than the water that she came for. She has found something more significant. She has now met a need that is more desperate, more basic than her need for water. And she leaves it and she runs out to tell the people, I think I just had an encounter with the Messiah. And she doesn't go tell them. He talked in a way, uh, he, he spoke like Yahweh of the Old Testament. It's incredible. And she doesn't say, He had this incredible answer to that that mountain question that we talk about every week. She says, this guy knows me. He knows my brokenness. He knows my messiness. He knows my imperfection. And he still wanted to talk with me. And he knew that's where I was hurting most. And so he pushed there and he pressed there. And he still wanted to tell me that he was the savior. She understood what I want us to understand this morning. And that is that our most basic need our most basic need is to recognize that we are broken and to realize that Jesus is Savior. Our most basic need, not that we don't have other needs. The woman's need for water was a legitimate, real need. But her most basic need and our most basic need is to recognize that we are broken people and that Jesus is Savior. Not politician, not theologian, not prophet, but Savior. He can save us from our mess. And where I start to get a little worried in my life and in my spiritual life is when my conversations with Jesus become about trying to gain water, my water. Where I start to get a little worried is when my interactions with Jesus at the well is about what he can do for me, how he can fill my water jar, and less about allowing Jesus to push on that thing which I need most, to push on my most basic needs, to push on my brokenness and my imperfection, and to start to dig into my life and expose my brokenness. And when my interactions with Jesus become about getting something is where it starts to become worrisome. Over the past few weeks, as I've I've sat with this text, 
and as I've sat with Jesus, he exposed things that I didn't like, that like the woman, I would have rather just kept at arm's length. Because it's easier to talk theology, it's easier to talk politics, it's easier to preach than it is to allow Jesus to enter into my heart and start to dig. And as I sat with Jesus, one of the areas that he said, this area is broken, this area is sin, is in the area of stinginess. I said, Andy, you're stingy. I said, Jesus, you're right. <laughs> I'm a stingy, I am, I'm a stingy person. And I don't mean it the way, I don't, I'm not talking like Dave Ramsey, financial wisdom. I'm not financially prudent and frugal. And I'm saying, because I spend money on, my, on myself easily. I am stingy. I withhold from others in a way that's not helpful. And I, I give to the church through the very convenient push pay system that wasn't, Dave didn't pay me to put that plug in there. But I give to the church through push pay. It's an automatic withdrawal. We give to some missionaries and it's an automatic withdrawal. But that's not, that's not a result of my generous heart. That's a, that's a financial transaction that I see on my, on my budgeting software. I'm stingy. And it's not a cute character trait. It's not a strength that if taken too far is a weakness, like we say in job interviews, it's brokenness. It's systemically, habitually broken in my life. And it's not good. And it's not what God wants for me. And so when Brittany comes home and says, would, would you mind if, if I bought this for this family, they could really use it? Yeah, I'm, I mind, because that's, that's our money. I would like to keep that when she says, would you mind if we went over and above and blessed this family in this way? They're going through this hard time. And I think I'd really rather not because the more that we give away, she understands this principle. She's not an idiot. She just is incredibly generous. The more we give away, the less we have. And the less we have, the less I get to buy for myself. And I like, I like things. Again, this is, I'm kind of poking fun, but this is, this is broken. This is imperfect. I like to upgrade devices and I like to complete collections. I like to have the newest, greatest, latest thing. This is broken. This is imperfect. This is not a cute character flaw. This is not something we write off. This is an area where in the past few weeks, Jesus has been digging into my life and saying, what about that generous thing? I'm generous to you. I, I've, I've blessed you. Why do you hold so tightly the things of this world? And we don't have time, thankfully, to tell you the other things that he's uncovered. Because <laughs> there are two or three others where he has dug and he has pressed and he has pushed. And there are others, and for you, there are some. Where you, when you sit with Jesus and you have a real moment with him, you, you don't talk about Jesus in terms of uh, disciplines or theology or politics or other people's issues. But when you actually come to Jesus and you sit with him and you say, would you uncover in my life what is broken? There are things in your life. It might, it might be stinginess and materialism and greed. It might be anger and irritability, short temper with people, quick fuse. I mean, it might be dishonesty, whether in the way that you talk to people or the way you conduct business or impurity or our lack of ability to forgive others. We hold on to grudges and we are bitter towards others in situations. It might be laziness. It might be an addiction to something, whether it's alcohol or entertainment or food or sports or whatever that thing that has taken the place of God in our life. 
I don't know, you probably know, and you probably would like to keep it at arm's length, but Jesus desperately wants to sit with you at the well and push on those things so that we uncover this truth that our greatest need and our most basic need is to recognize that we're broken people and to allow that brokenness to push us towards Jesus. I'm not advocating that we do this on our own. I'm not saying we go out and try and just modify our behavior. That as I try and root stinginess out of my life, that I just go and start handing $10 to people that could use it. And eventually, if I do that enough, if I, if I practice enough, I'll become perfect. I'll, I'll, I will get rid of this area in my life. That doesn't do anything for my heart. That doesn't root things out. That's behavior modification and is not the life Jesus came to give us. I'm also not advocating that we sit on the couch and we allow Jesus to come into our heart and we, we hope that he does some magic in here and one day we wake up and all of a sudden I'm a generous person. That's not it either. It's this cooperation between Jesus and us. It's, it's, it's allowing Jesus unrestricted access into our heart and then together with his power and our will, we begin to root these things out. And we don't do it so Jesus will love us more. We don't. We don't do it so that if we, if we can become better people, maybe Jesus will, will love us more. Maybe God will bless us more. Maybe we don't do it so Jesus will love us more. We don't do it so we can gain salvation, that if we do enough good, we do enough rooting out the scale tips in this favor and we can, we can gain salvation. That's not why we do it. That's not why we allow Jesus to come into our heart and root out sin. We do it because his life is better than our life. We do it because his water is better than our water. And a generous life is better than a stingy life. When you're stingy, you're constantly worried about if you have enough. When you're stingy, you're constantly withholding from others that could use it. When you're stingy, you're worried if you're gonna be able to upgrade and complete collections and have the nicest. And then you finally get it all. And then the new one comes out and you're right back to worrying and working for that thing. When you're stingy, it's a miserable life. The life God has for us, the, the water Jesus wants to give us is better than our water. A generous life, when you bless others, when you hold things of this world loosely, is better. It's better to be patient than irritable. Being irritable is awful. To always be upset and annoyed and frustrated at your spouse, your family member, the barista, the Chipotle worker, to always be annoyed at those people, that's a miserable life. To be patient and gentle is a better life. When people can trust you because you've rooted dishonesty out of your life, your relationships are better. Your conscience is clear and you could go on and on. We do it because his life is better than our life. I'm not suggesting this as a one-time practice, conversion experience where you, you have this moment that the woman had at the well where you realize for the first time that you're broken and you ask Jesus to come and to save you. That needs to happen. And maybe in this room today, you've never actually for the first time said, I'm a broken person and I wanna follow Jesus. But I am suggesting this in addition to that first time where you decide you're gonna make Jesus your savior. This is a weekly, if not daily practice where we sit with our savior and we say, go digging in my life and help root out what is not desirable, what is habitually and systematically broken. 
And I use the term root out because I love the picture. Like Jesus and I, or not Jesus and I, <laughs> Brittany and I just bought a house. Don't tell her, she's, she's not here. Don't tell her I called her Jesus. That will. <laughs> Brittany and I just bought a house Except, uh, in June. Apartment to home ownership. And if you guys remember that jump, that's a huge jump. And we, I was a little overwhelming to go from an apartment to a house. But one of the things that we received in our house, one of the things that we inherited was this incredibly landscaped garden groomed by the previous owners and it looks beautiful. And in two years, it will look like a jungle. But right now it looks beautiful. <laughs> one of the things though I did not like is this ground cover that was around the tree out front. And one day I'm pulling out of, I'm backing out of our driveway and I see this ground cover and I just, I just for the last time, I was like, I hate that ground cover. It's ugly, it's gross. It's the first thing people see when they come over. And so I just put my car in park, went out and just yanked, right? And just, I, I hate this ground cover. I just started, I just started pulling. Well, in a week, I'm pulling out of my driveway and the ground cover is still there. And I'm not a complete idiot. I know I need to go in there, but I just, I didn't want to. I didn't have a shovel or a trowel because we lived in an apartment. So I had to go buy a trowel or whatever and start to dig and pull and dig and pull. And I did that. And then I had to do that two or three times because I didn't get it all. And then actually yesterday I was pulling out of my driveway and there's one little spot left that I did not get. But that picture of digging and pulling and yanking is the picture of Jesus coming into our heart, not just that first initial time, but weekly, daily, and digging into our life and pulling out the roots of our sin. And to go and to just grab off the top is me trying to go and give people $10 and hoping that it changes my stingy heart. It's behavior modification, and it's not what Jesus came to give us. He came to give us a new life. He came to give us better water than what we could ever give ourselves, ever. I don't know if, this, if what this does to you as you sit here and as you hear this, if your mind immediately goes to something, if you, are, if you are putting me and Jesus and the Holy Spirit at arm's length and saying, I don't want this life because I don't want to do the work of yanking because it is work. And if you don't do the work, like I didn't do the work, it will come back. And we don't do it so Jesus will love us more. We do it because he has something better for us. And as we close our series, I, I hope this was helpful. I really do. I hope that this, this five-part series on perfect was helpful as we try to uncover this myth that we should or could be perfect in some way. That there's some standard to live up to as parents and as kids and as marriages. And we just shatter that notion and say, we're not perfect. I hope you caught that. But the other thing that we were trying to do as a team is to then push us in that brokenness to Jesus. To once we're there, once we realize that we are broken people, then we have to do something with that. And the hope was in this series, in these five weeks, that you heard us say, go to Jesus now with your brokenness because he is Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the one that is here to deliver. Because our, our brokenness is only to be celebrated in as much as it draws us to Jesus. That's it. Brokenness is bad. Imperfection is bad. But there is something about it that if it drives us to Jesus, if it helps us understand that Jesus is Savior of our life, then it can be celebrated. It is a good thing. God and Jesus use that 
daily in our lives. Too often we wear our brokenness as, as a badge of honor. Look at me, I'm so broken, I'm so messy, and we laugh at it, we joke about it, we use it as an excuse. Now, our brokenness has a role, and its role is to push us to Jesus. Its role is to break us thinking that we can do this on our own and to say there's one person that can do this. He's the Savior. And so as we finish, we're going to have a really unique time of communion where we get to respond to this truth, where hopefully we get to sit with Jesus and have a conversation with him, where we can realize our brokenness and recognize Jesus as the Savior. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. That you had this plan all along and that you pursue us the way, you, the way your son pursued the woman at the well, would not let her off the hook when she put him at arm's length. God, you pursue us that way and we are so grateful. Because it's in our brokenness, God, that we turn to you, that we run to you. And we recognize that you are the one, you are the only one that can do something with our broken lives. And so forgive us for thinking that we can do it ourselves. Forgive us for trading your gospel for behavior modification. Forgive us for thinking for one moment that our water is better than your water. Jesus, we want to spend time with you this morning. We want to have honest conversations with you. We want you to dig in our life and we pray that boldly, knowing that it's not comfortable, knowing that it takes work, knowing that it's awkward when you expose brokenness and imperfection in our lives. We want that because your life is better than our life. And so we pray this all in your name. Amen. As we transition to communion, we have an opportunity this morning to do something kind of unique. We thought... What better way could we wrap up this series on perfect than to respond by taking communion together? And so over in the corners of the auditorium, there are some stations that have communion set up. This is not going to be a thing where we pass it down the rows like we sometimes do. We want this to be an opportunity for you to respond, to actually physically get up and to respond to the gospel, respond to Jesus to Jesus in a very tangible way. And so we've created these stations where you can come and you can get some bread and you can dip it in some juice and you have this symbol in your hand, this physical symbol in your hand that points us to Jesus. And as you hold it and it's soaked with, with, with grape juice, you look at that and you say, this isn't just a piece of bread. I mean, it is a piece of bread, but it's not just a piece of bread. This means something. I can hold this and I can, this can be significant to me because of what it represents, because it represents a God who was not comfortable with us living stingy lives and angry lives and broken lives. This represents a God who descended to our level and died for us because he wants us to have a better life, because he wants to enter into our brokenness. And so it's the hope that as you move and as you respond, and as you take communion either alone or with your family or maybe people in your life group, and as you have this experience together, that you have an honest, reflective moment with your Savior. And I get, especially some of you in the middles, it's going to be a little weird trying to walk over people. 
I get that there's a lot of you in this room and there will be a line to take communion and that might feel a little ritualistic or I have to wait to take communion. But I would encourage you not to miss this moment, to respond in this unique way, something that we can do as Christians because of who we serve. And not to miss the moment to be able to hold that thing which qualifies Jesus to be Savior. It is his death and his resurrection that allows him to say, I am the Messiah, I am he, and I can save you from your brokenness. You get to hold that in your hand and partake. I got a little riled up there because that is incredible that he wants us that desperately and that he cares that deeply. So as we sing, please feel free to move and to respond according to the gospel. power in that. There's power in the love of God who lovingly and creatively and instinctively guides himself into your life and roots out that which is bad. May we have the courage and the strength to sit at the feet of God and say, what needs to go? What needs to go? Our hope is over these last five weeks that this series has taught you that that is a bold and very dangerous prayer, but that it is in His love, He heals, He restores, He makes new. He fixes that which is broken. We have a saying here at Parkview that you can come here messed up, you just can't stay messed up. And that is the truth of this message that Andy so beautifully gave. Will you thank Andy? That's not easy to do. You did a great job with it. I texted Ray, who's still on sabbatical for a couple more weeks, and I said, uh, you and I need to take more time off because uh, these young guys have got it under control. <laughs> so uh, will you stand and we'll close our service together and we'll, we'll pray. If you, if you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to grab a packet of these invites and invite somebody to come with you to Easter service uh, over the course of next uh, uh, Easter weekend. Uh, these are really easy things just to hand out or drop somewhere. Uh, we'd love for you to use those in that way. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're thankful for your love for us and for the gentle way in which you uh, carve into our hearts and our minds and take out those things that are painful, those things that are dysfunctional, that are broken, and you lovingly restore us to the life that you've designed for us. And so, God, I pray that as your church leaves the building today, you'd give us the courage to do just that, to sit quietly at your feet, to reflect on your goodness, to absorb your love, and eradicate the things in our life that are holding us back from experiencing you more fully. We thank you that you'll do that. We pray even now that you'd give us the courage. It's in your name that we pray.
Amen. Hey, if God's touched you this morning and you'd like to pray with some folks, there'll be people down here to pray with you. Otherwise, have a great week.